Hey everybody, it's the Digital Bytes Podcast with, of course, myself, James Tiley, and Johnny, J-O-N-N-Y, Fry. We're going to cover the February 9th newsletter that went out uh, to the world, right? And then you'll obviously be able to listen to this podcast. And uh, if you miss this podcast somehow, like you've lost it, and you don't know how to Google, you can always go to CyberFM and listen to the show over and over and over and over again until you don't want to do it anymore. The great news, because that's normal news, but the great news is, and I celebrated this earlier, in February, none of the, ce- the celebrities stopped dying, right? We, we had jokes about Betty White and, and uh, Bob Saget and then poor Meatloaf, right? We were mortified Meatloaf. over Meatloaf. Yeah. It's, it, Meatloaf broke the curse. It's over. Nobody has died. No one's died this week. Right. So I think well, that's, that's bu- I'm bullish. I'm bullish on life. Good. Good. And, and after, after the break, um, we've, got, we've got a, a very interesting um, guest this week. Um, and really, it's a little bit more philosophical, a little bit more thought-provoking. Um, and, he, and it's James Moffat. And he's going to be talking about, um, is the erosion in trust in our institutions a sign of terminal decline? Or can they adapt to a changing context? And we'll be touching on sort of um, DAOs and how blockchain technology and potentially digital assets can be used. But but before that, um, yeah, welcome welcome to the show. Um, and this is a Digital Bike Show, as James says, on Cyber.fm, um, going out to, wow, over 4 million, 4.6 million listeners all over the world. And uh, thank you for some of those um, listeners that um, contact us, give us some ideas for future stories and ideas. And and just as a recap, Digital Bike Show, is really a weekly analysis looking at how, where, and why blockchain technology and digital assets are being used in different industries and, and different countries. Um, and then once a week, um, James, my co-host, and myself, we, we look at um, a handful of the different articles that we, we publish. Um, if you'd like to get a hard copy, then just contact either James Tiley at Cyber.fm, he's on LinkedIn, or myself, uh, Johnny Fry, and we're happily put you on the list and you can receive a hard copy as well as listening to us um, once a week. I do have to get you more involved with Twitter. You know, did, did you see the fans talking to us on Twitter? I tagged you. Uh, have, you know, I was like, hey, the Twitter world, I got to get you into that more. I got to get you into like click and like. And- I, I, I find Twitter, Telegram, WhatsApp. It's uh, you're right. I need I need to do a little bit more. I did. I did. I was doing a load, but I just want to take all these different things. They take so much time, it seems sometimes. We have fans. We got to address the fans. <laughs> no, we, you're right. People, people do, people do sort of. Um, they, yeah, Twitter is very, very popular. Certainly, very, very popular. Yeah, I think, and, 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 and what's and, good is that they're reading these articles or they're listening to the show, which is leading them to read the articles. And kind of like when you bring James on later, I mean, this this information is not your normal info that you're going to get on Twitter. Yeah. Well, it's 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 interesting, and we're talking about sort of fans and and views. One of the um, ways that we come up with articles and topics to sort of look into a little bit more um, is that we we actually publish fabulous stuff on LinkedIn, um, and some things attract you know maybe you know four or five hundred views, some things attract thousands of views, and um, we put an article on LinkedIn. Um, which, which literally did attract well over, well over 12,000 people that actually um, registered, that they'd looked at it, 
um, and they'd actually made some made a comment. And, and once you're over about 200, 300 views on LinkedIn, you can then get an analysis and it'll basically say, um, you know, there's so many people have looked at it and these are the companies that they work for. These are their job titles and this is where they're based. Um, and we did a little summary um, of an article about um, an ex-minister um, in the UK government, a chap called Matt Hancock, and he was the ex-health um, secretary over here. And he was basically made a comment saying the UK can be the global home of cryptocurrencies if the government handles it right. Um, not only will crypto foster faster economic growth, but also have an impact um, governance due to its transparent nature. And again, we've got this word transparency impact, and we're going to touch on this a little bit more after um, after the break. But it, I, I found it very, very interesting to see not only the types of companies that were listening um, or, or looking at this, people like Deloitte, Ernst & Young, uh, Adidas, Microsoft, HSBC, um, with a sort of better, better known entities, but the, the, the places that people are based, obviously London, we're, we're based in London, but you know, Paris, Sydney, Madrid, New York, Sao Paulo, um, Greater Delhi. And it just goes to show the, the global reach and the global interest in, in these different topics. And, but it's a little bit interesting, I found, simply because this was talking about the UK um, economy, yet you've got all these other countries and all these very large entities that were sort of, that were looking at it, James. Well, you know, it's, it's not always about you, right, with the UK. I'm yeah, shocked. Well, so how much is the US going to try to pull that, right? As opposed to, I don't know, I don't want to get like all soapboxy, right? But shouldn't every country have almost an equal weight into you know, making these decisions. Like, is it really the UK or the US? The US is what? Opening up the, the they're bringing the OCC in now. They're going to make those decisions. And then, uh, you know, you always have Russia talking about what their balance is at this point. Well, they're, they're accepting as legal tender. Yep. Well, it's, well, it's interesting because um, the SEC head in the USA, um, Gary Gensler, um, the way he's talking is that we may well go back to a period of almost like self-regulation um, because he was saying um, that he can see a situation whereby the plat the digital um, exchanges, the platforms, um, they'll actually potentially comply with rules and regulations that the SEC have actually um, set out on a voluntary basis. Um, and, and the thing is, is that it's actually, if these countries don't start adopting um, and start um, regulating some of these technologies, then other countries, when they do, there's a very good chance that you're going to see jobs and you're going to see, therefore, um, taxes and you're going to see value transferring from the countries that are not supportive to the countries that are supportive. So we understand that the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency in the US, the OCC, um, they actually sort of confirmed to banks and saving institutions that... Um, it'd be a good idea for them and they were obliged really to comply with the normal procedures that they have for fiat, that they do the same for cryptocurrencies. And if they did that, then it was, it was seen as a sort of a tacit green light that they could get involved in um, digital assets. And, and I understand that what they've done, they've gone, this is the OCC in America. They've gone to some of the biggest sort of banks and uh, saving institutions in the, in the U S and asked for a representative to actually 
um, go and be on like a committee and they're taking their views and their recommendations say, well, this is what industry experts feel and think. Um, and at one extreme, they're going to ban cryptocurrencies and another extreme, um, you know, they're going to ban the dollar and they're just only going to have crypto. Well, I, I personally don't believe it'll be either extreme, but we, I, I'd be very, very surprised if they ban cryptocurrencies. And I think there will be a degree of adoption. I, do, do you have a view or a thought on that, James? I, to be a fly on the wall, right? I would imagine it'd be, do you ever see parliaments argue? Like Australia gets wild, right? When they're trying to pass a law and they're yelling at each other. I've seen it with Canada <laughs> myself. Can you imagine a bunch of fintech computer geeks specializing <laughs> in currency, arguing over what their country's values are? It's a, I, I'd watch that all day. <laughs> well, that's true. But, but and as you, you mentioned Russia earlier on, and you're absolutely right, this week, um, we, we, we're quite pleased about this because they the russian finance minister came out saying cryptocurrencies should be regulated um and they were going to be potentially um and making an announcement that that was going to be the case and on the 9th of february the day we actually printed and published digital bytes the russians came out with an announcement that indeed they were they were going to actually um allow cryptocurrencies to be used but um they were going to make sure there were the, the gatekeepers the exchanges the platforms the people that can actually get into cryptocurrencies, um, there was some degree of sort of filtering. So it wasn't going to be just for everyone that people need to make sure that they were, you know, high net worth, sophisticated, because they are obviously concerned about the volatile nature of some different cryptocurrencies. So we're beginning to see a bit more of a, a thaw. Um, India, another another country, they've, they've slapped 30% tax on it, but they have, having said, no, no, it's banned, it's banned, it's banned. Now it looks like, um, you know, they're becoming a little bit more friendly towards cryptocurrencies. So it's interesting how the landscape's actually evolving. Would you think that as it become, it's become volatile, right? Like you said, they were banning it, FUD here, FUD there, tax this, tax that. It's illegal. Now it's legal. As that whole thing becomes more volatile, will that eventually lead to that, that stabilization where... Now all these countries will slowly agree. Like they have to go yeah, crazy it, first. Well, it, it's interesting. Do you remember um, a couple of weeks ago we had our we had the man from uh, Miami Vice, Brian Coyne, um, the derivatives oh, yeah. tra- South African derivatives trade from Casey Holdings, right? Um, do you remember he was a good old good old boy from the eighties? Good, old, he liked his rock and roll, um, and he, he's he's a he's a specialist derivatives trader, um, and I was I was talking to him um, and, and, his, um, and his colleague, and they were looking at how the OTC derivatives, over-the-counter derivatives for cryptos, and how that's developing um, in the sort of cryptocurrency market. And we were looking, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, um, at the number of developers um, that are working just in the DeFi space, and it's, it's at a record 18,000 people. And what we're beginning to see, we see a fairly specialist thing, you know, OTC derivatives, which 99% of people will never even understand, let alone get involved in it. But certain institutions know that if they can actually trade in volume and there's depth and there's liquidity, and part of that liquidity can be um, catered for by things called over-the-counter derivatives, then it will encourage greater liquidity. And with greater liquidity, typically we therefore see less price swings, there's less money, less um, variation in prices. 
And, and I think that's something which historically the crypto market has suffered from. And that is the prices of cryptocurrencies can rise and fall you know, quite markedly. You know, you know, we've seen even this year, you know, cryptocurrencies, you know, in the last year, they've gone from a low of, um, you know, around about sort of what, 20 odd thousand dollars to um, nearly seventy thousand um, dollars. So and, you know, back recently, it fell to about thirty two thousand. Now we're around about forty five thousand. So at one level, you can see it moves up and down. That's just Bitcoin. But as we see more people coming in, as we see more ways to trade these cryptocurrencies, um, I believe what we'll see over time is, is, is less volatility, because as prices move up, there'll be people there to actually either, um, you know, perhaps buy or sell or, or, or arrest that movement in price. And, that, and, that's, and that's seen in equity markets. You know, large cap companies tend not to move up and down as much as smaller cap companies. And as 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 we see cryptocurrencies maturing, you know, some of the smaller ones that, that you know that capitalize at 50, 100, 200, even five hundred million, they will remain volatile. But as we start seeing some of the some of the other cryptocurrencies, you know the Ethereum's and the Bitcoins and things like that, um, you know th- I believe you'll see them actually being less volatile going forward. And, and I think personally, I think volatility is what makes these countries talk and, and worry at times. Yeah, yeah. So the, the, the other thing that we, we were looking at, a, a really, really interesting article, actually from, um, from the USA, um, and it was um, from FICA Ventures in Los Angeles. Um, and, and they were just looking at the whole, um, you know, and, and this is a sort of a, an institutional investor looking to invest in small, medium-sized companies, um, predominantly in the US and Canada. And, and that's where their research has come out of. And, and what they were looking at was how um, institutions are transforming um, the way they do business um, and the new types of technologies, whether it be AI or whether it be big data or whether it be blockchain. And we're seeing increasingly um, institutions are changing to com- combat you know, some of the increased risks that a face when we no longer deal on a face-to-face basis. So we no longer necessarily go and see our stockbroker or our fund manager or our financial advisor, let alone our bank manager. Um, and, and a lot of those services have been replaced by bots or by sort of automatic execution and algorithms. So this is the sort of fund you ought to buy, or this is the sort of area that you ought to be investing in rather than an individual. And what they're able to start doing though, is actually building and I think this goes to, to our guest building in a degree of trust because they're taking the human element out of it potentially and the bias and actually using technology to help with um, money, you know, m- money laundering. So actually making sure that sort of KYC and AML um, can actually be much, much more efficient and not reliant on on individuals, James. Right. That even comes down to like, I think the last time I KYC'd, uh, it was an automated piece of software that like took my photo and I was holding my driver's license, right? I don't believe there was any human interaction at all the last time yeah. I did it. Yeah. Well, I I found if I had to open up a bank account for a company um, this week and the whole process took less than 10 minutes um, to, from going online to actually um, actually putting some money into the account. So and you think what the tortures process um, I can remember when I set up Team Blockchain in 2016, so six years ago now, it took three months to set the bank account up. 
you know, <laughs> as opposed to 10 minutes. So, and, and, and you know, and that's what the article is talking about, that there's, um, they, they refer, refer it to as building a digital crime fighting software toolkit. So, you know, with user identification or sort of onboarding, um, you know, monitoring sort of workflows and then the whole regulatory reporting. And, and this is um, one of the things which I find quite fascinating when um, I talk to some of my peers in the asset management and the banking industry where, you know, I've been involved in, you know, for, for coming up for 40 years. And that is the technology is now able to give us stronger compliance, better risk control at a lower cost. Now, that really has been the holy grail. Um, you know, and I know you were telling me just before we came on air about you you were challenged with um, a solution to, to how do you stop fat fingers? How do you how do you make people just double check um, that there wasn't um, an error in terms of they actually did mean to sort of buy or sell, you know, a million or a billion or, you know, a hundred million, whatever it is. And, and actually automation can actually go a long way to actually removing a lot of human error, which, you know, is inevitable when you're sort of dealing in, in, in financial markets, but actually it's just as true in, in, in the pharmaceutical industry, in the retail industry, in the petrochemical industry, and technology can very much be working with us to act as a check and a balance. And technology once it's installed is, is almost costless um, to actually then deploy and monitor and manage on an ongoing basis. Jamie. Yeah. Technology is deflationary. Yes. They, they do yeah. argue that point. Yeah. Well, I suppose that's Moore's law, isn't it? Right. You know, the fact that you're getting, you're getting, you know, it, the cost of technology c- continues to fall. We could have a whole the- show about the Flynn effect and Moore's technology. Could you imagine? <laughs> that would be dangerous. It certainly would. It certainly would. So yeah, so that's um, that's that's uh, you know, just just a selection of some of the some of the articles that um, we've got in Digital Bytes this week. Um, but coming up after the show. As I say, we've got James Moffitt from um, the New Future Foundation, who, who's really going to be having a bit more in-depth sort of discussion with us about um, how potentially the level of trust that we have in institutions that we deal with, whether that's the banks, whether it's our, our local church or synagogue or, or government, you know, actually, you know, is it something that, you know, perhaps in the past we didn't have access to the information, now with the, the web, We've got access to information and we can check out what is what we, you know, how truthful is it, what we're being told. And certainly the use of blockchain technology, how that can help bring much greater transparency. So, um, yeah, that's coming up after the break. Yeah, and that is probably the, that was the most uh, insightful article I read this week. That's for sure. More of my, my personality, though. Yeah. Okay, so say if anyone wants to get any, uh, would like to get a copy of Digital Bytes, then please contact James Tiley at cyber.fm or myself, Johnny Fry. We're we're both on LinkedIn and um, be delighted to hear from you. Um, Otherwise, we'll be back just after this next break. Yeah, in the meantime, I should probably call some of my friends and see if they uh, got a gig with the OCC or not, huh? I'm all intrigued about that one. (laughs) See if you can be that fly on the wall. I'd be a fly on the wall. (laughs) All right, we'll be back with James Moffat in a few. You are listening to the all-new Cyber.fm. Hey, we're back as promised. I'm here with Johnny Fry. Johnny's always bringing in the special people. And this article 
that we brought up this week was, um, well, it's a good read because it was part one of, of apparently many, but it's, it's not, I don't think about crypto when I read this article. I thought more about just the world and what's going on. And uh, of course, you know, it had to be a, a deep thought because the author has the greatest name in the world. His name is James. So you know he's smart. <laughs> but let Johnny introduce him. Oh, for goodness sake, James, just because he's called James, you don't know he's smart. He's just another another sort of ma- man from across the pond. But uh, we, we hide ourselves well. You always <laughs> want to watch the quiet ones. <laughs> James Moffat, welcome to the Digital Bite Show and welcome to your fellow James, James Tiley, who's my fellow host. So w- welcome to the show. Thanks, Johnny. Uh, uh, thanks for having me on. Hello, James. I agree with you. You're entirely right. Everyone called James is uh, absolutely fabulous. Sorry, Johnny. Close second. <laughs> but uh, uh, no, we're, it's James's, James's to rule the world for sure. Oh, dear. <laughs> Double James Day today. Not a, a, not a James Bond in sight because neither you to James Bond. I can guarantee you that. Well, you know, I guess that's your perspective. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I quite fancy the idea. I fancy the idea, but maybe not. I'm a little too geeky to be James Bond. <laughs> well, you're more like sort of Q, are you? Or M? Uh, no, is it Q. M? Uh, what, what's the one that works in the... Uh, in well, the one that's Basil Fawlty. Gadgets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely more well, in that correct. <laughs> well, James, you, as you say, don't, you're, you're in the midst of doing three articles, um, mainly because I, I did ask you to do an article and you did something like, you did like War and Peace, you something, something like 5,000 words. No, no, James, you can't do that. We, you're going to have to break it up. But um, I've, I've had the uh, pleasure of reading reading them. But um, I, before we get into your article, just can you just tell the listeners, um, and bear in mind, there's, you know, they're literally all over the world in about 140 different countries. Can you spe- just, uh, just a couple of minutes explain who you are and and what does New Future Foundation, what, what does it actually do? Sure. So, hello, I'm James, everybody. Um, I live in the UK, down in a little corner called South, the Southwest England, um, in an area called Devonshire, which uh, is a little bit like the Shire in The Hobbit, I suppose is the best way to uh, describe <laughs> it uh, in terms of how it looks. Um, but, uh, yeah, I am one of those small group of people that's both uh, kind of millennial and uh, kind of uh, kind of Generation X as well, so an Xennial. So I've kind of lived through that period of um, both the, the pre and post internet. Um, I've built an agency over the last twenty years that works with some of the biggest brands in the world um, uh, called Organic, um, and uh, that's still going very strong. And then the New Future Foundation <clears throat> is an ecosystem, really, for for people like me, uh, for for people who are investors, entrepreneurs, um, thought leaders. Who, who share the feeling that we're quite privileged to live at this time. You know, digital, the work of Tim Berners-Lee and the internet is, is transforming the world in a way akin to the printing press or the invention in writing before it. And um, we're quite lucky to be alive at such an exciting time. And, um, uh, you know, things are changing very fast. And our mission as an organisation is to um, help make sure that the new digital world that's being better... Uh, being built is is a good one so we talk about dig- the future is digital let's make it a good one and we do this through lobbying uh, content and thought leadership educational events um, investing in startups that are going to build the platforms that kind of define the corp- institutions of the digital world uh, and yeah a variety of other things we've got the new future um, venture studio in there which is literally building companies and investment fund as well so a whole ecosystem 
really engaged in helping kind of try and make the digital world that's being built around us, you know, as positive as it can be. Okay, thanks for that, James. But but I'm confused. You're you're really positive, and I know you're positive uh, as a person. But uh, you're talking about it's really positive, and yet you're saying that we're losing trust in some of the institutions that I wouldn't say we know and love, but we certainly know them. And in the past, we have relied on them. And and you're saying that well, your title is is erosion in trust in our institutions a sign of terminal decline, or can they adapt? Can they? And w- what's the problem? Well, I think, you know, we live in a world where most of the institutions around us, from our companies to our education systems, to government, to regulatory systems, you name it, our economy, our financial institutions, the fourth pillar of uh, Western liberal democratic society, which is the media. um, They're all they were all built in the 19th and 20th century. Right. And the defining feature of the 19th and the 20th century, all they're older than that is a world in which access to knowledge and information was quite limited. There was only a limited number of people with access to it, right? And um, they evolved to create structures to organise and execute for large populations to do things like create wealth um, uh, in uh, this environment of limited access to information uh, and without the ability to do things well at scale. So they have certain characteristics. They're hierarchical. They try and control the flow of knowledge, you know, and they assume that, that most of the population is uneducated and un, un, unwealthy and doesn't have access to that. Now, in, in 1989, 1990, Tim Berners-Lee, you know, created HTML and open sourced it in terms of the licensing. And, and, and based on the work of DARPA to build the infrastructure before that, the Internet was born. And over the last 30 years, we've seen the creation of technology and infrastructure. That means we we no longer live in that environment and context. We now live in a world where you can just Google it, right? Quite literally, you can Google information, whether or not it's true or not, is one of the biggest debates we're having, right? Um, But you can get information at the drop of a hat, and it's no longer controlled and gatewayed by these institutions. Um, And the net impact of that, fundamentally, is the the environment in which these institutions are designed, uh, you know, the limited information has changed. And so they don't work as well as they used to, Johnny, right? Uh, Because you can see that digital has literally lifted the veil on on these institutions. I did some work for a German bank some years ago, and we used to talk about how the glass, the the glass on their um, tower in Canary Wharf um, you know, it was two way. People can see inside because of all the devices and all the digital stuff. And they don't like what they see. They realize that the people running the institutions are just as human as they are, just as flawed as they are. They don't have massive access to some special knowledge necessarily that they have access to. And they can see the compl- the, the, the hypocrisies and the inefficiencies in all of this. Okay. And it undermines those institutions and, and the trust in them. Okay, so so what you're saying, the, these institutions, governments, religions, possibly certainly companies, they kind of built their structures and their systems around other people having a lack of knowledge. Um, you know, you're encouraged actually not to read and write and just do as you're told and pay your dues, you know, to the local lord um, or king or, or whatever. And now we live in a digital world where the information is freely available. So how does this tie in with um, obviously, blockchain technology or, or digital assets. What, what's 
what's the big deal about that? Are they, did they help the situation or do they make it even worse because it's all sort of crypto and, you know, people don't know what's going on? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, you know, the truth is that, well, I'm not going to say I know the truth or I'm party to any particular truth, but the reality is that th- those technologies were created in reaction to the 2008 financial crisis, right? Okay. The, the founders uh, who invented those technologies and despite what we're told and the hype around them being new and exotic technologies, you know, encryption, peer-to-peer networks, these technologies underlying them, they are decades, if not centuries old. This is this has a long history. And, and, and you know, all those technologies are used in different ways in, in, in institutions already. So they're not as exotic as they're, as they're made out to be in many respects. But um, these technologies were created by the founders, by Satoshi and his peers, uh, whoever he is, um, you know, in reaction to the banks uh, and governments uh, basically undertaking quantitative easing after the subprime mortgage crisis and the collapse of the financial system. And they were frustrated that um, uh, that the, the ordinary people were, had to pick up the bill, um, that um, these well, the taxpayers had to bail out the banks. Exactly, exactly. And it is this kind of thing that, you know, has undermined our trust in a the financial system, but also our political institutions as well. Right. So government, trusting government in, in the West is at the lowest levels it has been uh, in modern history. Um, a lot of this is to do with the challenge for who controls what truth and information. Our dear friend Donald Trump, you know, talks about fake news and all of these things like that. And there's loads of stats. The Edelman Trust Barometer talks about the global infodemic, uh, infodemic and how trust in all news sources is at record lows. Uh, even our security institutions, you know, trust in police forces and trust in uh, uh, military forces is at record lows as well and declining all the time. Uh, and whilst digital has... Um, has given us many benefits. As I say, it's, it's allowed us to see these organizations in a different way. Uh, and, uh, uh, and we don't like what we see. What crypto does, however, and, and you know, what the founders of it tried to do was to build a system that allowed us to kind of not have trust at scale, trust in digital, but to build what's called trustless systems. Um, trustless systems in a digital space. Uh, and, uh, these trustless systems uh, work on a distribute they, on a distributed ledger, as you know, and they essentially mean that you don't really have to place the trust in one institution or one organization or one big company because that trust is distributed amongst multiple stakeholders in the network. OK, so would an example of a trustless entity organization would be um, a DAO? Um, a DAO, exactly. So, okay. yeah. So- just for some readers, do you mind explaining just very simply what a DAO is and what, why you call it a trustless entity? OK, so it's a distributed autonomous organisation, essentially. So what happens is that there's a whole load of rules and information that is stored in a ledger. And that ledger is copied and handed out to lots of different people. So they all have a copy of it. Um, and essentially, if an update is made to that information or the rules are changed, or something happens, or a piece of information is recorded in there, it is recorded in all of the different copies of that ledger, right? So there's lots and lots of copies. And then there's the use of encryption, another technology to make it very difficult 
uh, to link those ledgers together so that if you change one, it's clear that it's been you know, messed around with it. And it creates something that is very hard to abuse or fake or for one person to manipulate for whether it's for their own interest or because they're under pressure from others. And a DAO is an organization where the, the, the rules for decision making are based upon that software technology, right? So it makes, it distributes the decision-making power and um, it entrenches it in the software. So it's very hard to manipulate or break. Okay, so rather than having a a company or an organization whereby you have a a managing partner, maybe in the council law firm, or or you have a CEO of a business, a a DAO um, typically runs on a blockchain, um, making use of things like smart contracts, and people can have a say in what the organization does, as opposed to if like their vote counts, I suppose. Is that a way to think of it? Yeah, they're stakeholders, right? They, they have a stake in it and they have a say. Um, and this isn't a new thing, right? I mean, there, there's a great example in the Museum of London on the Barbican. So I don't know if you've ever been there, Johnny, but um, uh, it, it's yeah, just yeah. It, it, on the second floor. In, in the building, there's just this old chest from the 14th century. And in, in, in this chest, it's just got this nothing special. It's just sat there and it says that the uh, City of London Guildhall stored all their important civic documents, valuables and seals in it. Now, you know, by today's standards, this is a very cutting edge. It's not a very cutting edge way of uh, securing all your most important financial and legal and informational assets. Um, but it was the ultimate technology available to them at the time. And on this chest, there are six locks. And each lock had a separate key and each key was held by an individual key holder. So you could only open and access these important assets and validate them if all six key holders were there at one time. It was so like a multi-sig wallet then. Exactly the same technology principle, Johnny, right? <laughs> so for centuries and centuries, societies where people have had to trust one another and collaborate on tasks have been coming up with the same solutions in order to do that. Democracy, you know, uh, and, and many, uh, you know, uh, is is a process whereby we say, OK, um, we're going to elect representatives and they're going to collaborate together. And we've got a stake in the system because we have a vote. And it's exactly the same kind of pro- uh, process of some kind of distributed system of decision making. Um, uh, uh, you know, and, and that's a system we employ now, in theory, in the West to, and hold up you know, as an ideal form of government because everybody has a stake in it. So this could be a new form of democracy, could it be? You know, we're seeing companies. Could we Could we possibly see um, local authorities, regions, dare I say, even countries sort of migrating to a DAO? Yeah, I, in terms of... Put, put, put the ego of a politician aside because they'd hate it because they always know better and they always want to be in control. But if we put them aside, if it, if this works and it's... It's for and we can do it because we now have the digital tools available. Could we see bigger entities, not just companies going down this route? Well, you know, even since crypto began, people have been experimenting with it as a form. You know, uh, Vinay Gupta uh, wrote a little white paper called A State in a Box. And there was a famously a, a Bitcoin thing called the People's Republic of Doug in the early days of Bitcoin as well. Now there's 180 DAOs out there with you know, more than 10 billion US dollars under management representing 2 million members. So we can call it, you know, a new way of, of organizing. But those are pretty big numbers, Johnny. Uh, and, and 
uh, yeah, you, you can apply it essentially to any organizational principle. So, um, you know, you could organize political parties or you could organize uh, uh, companies or you can organize governments around it in principle, uh, entrench the processes within the technology, distribute the decision making, and everybody feels like they've got a stake in the system. Well, it's funny, James, because James Tolley and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, James. Do you remember? And um, you, you, you were saying that the a DAO had been set up to try and buy the American Constitution. Um, and Correct. It, the biggest, it, what was it, what do you call it? I called it the, the, the most best successful failure. Fail. Yeah, the <laughs> best way to fail because, because they failed. They didn't buy the Constitution and therefore, if my, if my understanding is correct, they, they got their money back, James. Is, is, is that right? So every investor got refunded for... That's the story, right? We're not speaking on their mm-hmm. on their behalf. Every investor has the ability to be refunded, according to their website. Uh, they failed at the purchasing of the Constitution, and money was made, you know, in regular cryptocurrency markets with liquidity and volume and and you know resources with exchanges. So it, it was the ultimate successful failure, and I, I've usually left it there. Yeah, I, but I, the token still trading though. Um, we look, we're looking at James. It, it pumped recently. It actually went up. <laughs> but that's the crazy world that we live in. So, so, so I, I had a bet to try and buy the constitution with all my fellow mates. We failed. We got our money back. Yet we we had something akin to a warrant or an option or some form of participation ongoing. So even though we got money back, there still seems to be some economic value left in the Dow, which seems to be almost alchemy, you know, magic money almost. I think it's alchemy, Johnny, until you, you know, you know, start to go and hear some of the stories that you told me over over the years about, you know, how different financial assets have been created through history and things like that. You know, I think value is something we imbue upon something purely, you know, Very from good. subjective perspective. Right. Um, I was talking the other day to um, somebody online about intrinsic value versus perceived value. Um, And it's a whole different conversation for another day. Um, I I think a lot of people look at that point and they go, well, this is crazy, isn't it? These DAOs, they're trying to buy the Constitution and now they've created this thing that has some kind of intrinsic value. Um, You know, I think there's a couple of things to point at. Number one, look, everybody got their money back. They didn't yeah. succeed, but everyone was protected. They got their money back. The rules were fulfilled because they were in there. But also, you know, this is not about building a better computer system or a better um, technical platform that's faster or more efficient or something like that. You know, throughout history, the technologies and the systems that we've chosen to to help us solve problems like trust and how we work together and how we collaborate have never been the most perfect and efficient systems. You know, in marketing, the one that comes up all the time is Betamax versus VHS, right? (laughs) As being the best system or the first past the post electoral system in the UK is by far and away, not the most democratically representative system, but they provide an ugly compromise and they make people feel like they've got a stake in the system you know, to, to one extent. And so they feel like they, they're working together and collaborating. And, and this is where the technology uh, really has its secret source. It's not the best technology. It's not necessarily particularly efficient or easy to do, um, you know, and there's actually 
other systems that are much better, arguably, at stopping the concentration of assets and power. But it delivers trust in institutions precisely because it is trustless. Right? And it, it allows everybody to have a stake and know that, that to some level, no, it's very hard for one person to take overall control and manipulate the system. Not impossible, but it's hard. And yeah. the traditional ways of doing that in an analog world, they just don't stand, they don't translate directly into a digital world. We have to build new ways of doing that. And, you know, like it or not, we live in a world where, where 90% of what we do, what we're doing right now, is digital first, and that's just going to grow and grow and grow. Yeah, I, I, you know, and our regular listeners will, will be very familiar. You know, one of the key attributes that we always point out when you're looking at the blockchain technology, and you're quite right, it's not necessarily the best system. Um, it's, it's certainly not the silver bullet for all ills, but one thing it does seem to be able to do in majority of cases, and that's bring greater transparency. And if you have greater transparency, typically that will lead to greater trust. Um, and trust is a rare commodity because people tell you things and then you say, well, hang on, that's not quite correct. I've just Googled it. You know, whether you go and see your doctor or your dentist or your mechanic and you say, well, hang on, I'm not sure if my big end's gone or I need root canal filling or, you know, I've got a dicky toe. Uh, Google says such and such and such and such. So anything that can actually give greater transparency information that people can rely on, hopefully, therefore, will give us greater trust but I, I agree. Change entirely. I know I know we're getting tight in time but any any thoughts that, that spring to mind you know I was thinking earlier um so I used to be that guy right I was that guy that would be like you people are crazy we talking about you putting tinfoil hat on right and it was this is not that long ago where uh I had friends that would like take apart the televisions to remove the microphone because everybody's always listening Right, and I, and I would go, bro. Just buy the TV and enjoy television. Don't worry about it. So they would go, no, no, no. You have to realize that we're being tracked and traced, and and everything is everything is secretive, and we're not being told. And I'm removing this mic. Just the same guys that were putting electrical tape over their their webcam on their laptops. And yeah. and I used to look sure. at them and go, sure. if you want to watch me type, knock yourself out. <laughs> and then one day, one day. I got an email from my TV manufacturer that, that explained we need to take a firmware update due to the security involved in our microphone embedded in your television. This is an opt-in program, and if you need to update your firmware for the ability to disable your microphone, please do so this way. And I read the email, and I said to myself, what? Why? Why does my TV have a microphone? And I immediately started thinking about my friends of the past that were ripping their televisions apart. And I was telling them they were crazy. And I now had to go into the living room and update the firmware on my television so that I wouldn't be spied on. As yeah. like, so the, We're told, to summarize, there's a lot of times in the past where we were told those people are crazy. None of that is true. And then it, you find out, well, it is true. We, we didn't mean to do it. So we dismissed so many things only to be lied to. And there's, there's your circle of trust, right? With mm-hmm. news and media. And you Google, is my TV listening to me? You're probably going to get back the answer of no. No, it's not. 
right? <laughs> and then when you walk in your living room, it's going to play an ad for Google. And you're going to go, well, how the heck did that happen? <laughs> yeah. So now I think on your point, transparency and trustlessness and, and you know, permissionless, the, 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 clar- the clar- ooh, new word, the clarification of data being available almost through a transparent glass is going to scare the people at first that have the wildest of imaginations. But maybe 10 or 15 years from now will be, we'll be appreciative of the knowledge that's available and we won't allow the craziness to happen. The craziness should dissipate when you can't be crazy anymore. Here's my soapbox. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you yeah. know, we, you know, right now, okay, the gap between the richest and poorest in society, between the leaders and not, in the West is greater than it has ever been. And it's getting bigger. And when that happens, trust in the society declines. That's a fact. At the same time, Western societies under threat from centralized organizations that are way more efficient at executing because only one person has to make the decision, right? Who are rising in terms of economic power. Elites have, have a habit of, uh, you know, adopting and absorbing challenges to the status quo. You know, emancipation in the West came about because of mass conscription of World War II and the need to fight off the Nazis and other powers and things like that. That's historically what's happened. We talk about CBDCs now and the rise of central bank digital currencies. We have to be in a position, I think, where the elites, if they're going to continue to make money themselves and to continue power, they have to take people with them. And they won't be able to do that unless there is a sense of being part of it and stakeholding and trust in the system. So, you know, to survive, the system has to change. And my view is that crypto technologies is one way in which that can happen. All right. Well, on that on that sort of positive note, um, we better better wrap it up. James, I know I say this is um, you've, you've written three three parts to your, your, your thoughts. Um, sure. How can people get um, get a copy or get in contact with you um, to get more information? Is LinkedIn the best bet or how, what's the best so LinkedIn? If you want to find out a little bit more or even talk about the challenges or the opportunities, you can contact me via LinkedIn, James Moffat or New Future Foundation. You can email us, james at newfuture.foundation as well. Um, or, you know, drop Johnny a call and uh, he'll put you in contact as well. Certainly so. will. Okay. Well, James, ah. that's, well, James Moffitt, thank you very much for coming on. And um, it'd be great to get you back later in the year because you've now, I think you've probably got a few people thinking, well, hang on, some of this, this, this guy's either crazy or this guy actually really has hit a raw nerve and this is how I feel and think. Um, so I, I think we'll get you back later in the year for an update and find out, you know, what, what have you been doing? Um, James Tiley, that's another week, as they say. So thank you very much um, for organising everything this week on, on Cyber.fm. And um, we'll um, be back on the air next week with another Digital Byte show um, with another guest and more, more articles about things going on, James. Yeah, and, and for the record, Betamax will always be the superior format over VHS. Oh, don't <laughs> there you go. Paul, <laughs> read the Paul Krugman quote in my article, John and Jen. <laughs> You're right, but it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Take care.